commentary in the opening verses of Revelation where, God, where John passes on the blessing from God and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, that he does not believe there are seven Holy Spirits. So there is one number. Even my, my father in the faith and colleague with whom I didn't share a lot on that day, but at least one number he granted is really symbolic. There's one Holy Spirit. And, of course, John says that because he talks about the Spirit, the one Spirit, speaking of the churches. But he portrays the Holy Spirit in sevenfold form uh, to emphasize the complete, infinite infinity of the Holy Spirit, that he is God without limits. Uh, and that's only one of a number of examples that we could say there are symbolic numbers all the way through, through the book of Revelation. We're going to come to one in... Uh, we actually touched... Well, we went past it in chapter 11, but we're going to come back to it in 13 in this session. Uh, Another set of numbers that are symbolic as well. But a thousand years is obviously 10 times 10 times 10, 10 to the third power. And it's, it's simply used in that way to say to John and his first century readers, yes, much of what John sees here is about things that must soon take place. But at the same time, to John and his first century hearers in those churches, there are things that John sees that refer to time, a time far beyond your lifetime on this earth. And that's the point of the thousand. Uh, it, it's not to say, mark the date. It's to say this has to do with a long period of time in which, as I said in answer to the question last hour, in which Satan is bound so he can't keep the nations in the darkness that he held them in in the Old Testament period, in which the martyrs are ruling in heaven, and then will come the end of time. So now I've talked about that one thing, and I still can't think of the other, so we'll just push in to uh, now chapters 12, 13, 14. We may look a little beyond that, but mainly these chapters, which are actually right at the very core of the book of Revelation, right at the heart of the book of Revelation. It's, it's, it's the, 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 the central matryoshkadal. We've gone through the surface manifestations of the seven churches and what they were experiencing. We've looked a little bit more deeply at the fact that they were ex- experiencing things that uh, are explained by the, the reality that Jesus is ruling, he holds the scroll in his hand. He's working out God's plan for the rest of history as the risen, the slain and risen lamb. And he is even using the disasters that come into the experience of the human race through human wickedness, through the greed for power from human rulers and military forces and other religious forces in the world. He's using those things to warn people. He's using those things also to protect his people, to urge us to be fortified for hard times to come, but that he is leading us to victory. Well, now we come, and if you look again at your chart with the boxes, we come to the blue sections here, in which really all that... John's hearers experienced in the first century and the church has experienced since then 
is put in an even bigger context because the beginning of John 12 really takes us, in a certain sense, it focuses on Christmas, but it goes back to Eden. You could put it that way. It focuses on Christmas, well, Christmas and Easter and Good Friday and Easter altogether, but it goes back all the way to Eden. So I, I will read a few verses here from the beginning of 12. 12 one. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The first of two visions in the book of Revelation. But you can hear here the echoes that go all the way back to Eden. In fact, later in this chapter, we read that in that period after the career of the woman's son on earth, when he's born, you, you know, it's, it's, it's Christmas and Ascension Day blended into one. If you blink, you miss it. He's born and caught up to the throne of God. The dragon can't destroy him. The dragon's efforts to destroy him, as we know from the Gospels, through the temptations in the wilderness, through the temptation to avoid the cross, even through the mouth of his loyal disciple Simon Peter. Lord, you can't go to the cross. And Jesus recognizes who's really speaking through Peter. You're not thinking God's thoughts. You're thinking Satan's thoughts, man's thoughts. Get behind me. Through all of the temptations, Satan tried to destroy Christ, tried to destroy him on the cross, and lo and behold, that was Satan's demise. Because by putting Jesus to death, Jesus dying for the sins of you and me, that was the defeat of Satan as the accuser of us who belong to Jesus. When Jesus died, what looked like, as Paul says, weakness and foolishness in the world, that's really his greatest triumph. And the resurrection is the Father's demonstrating that death had no claim on Jesus and demonstrating that he is the Son of God who's become our human brother to be our Redeemer and our Savior. And now he's seated at God's right hand. So that's all, John knows that's all packed into that, that little sentence. I saw the woman give birth, a male child, rule the nations. He's caught up to the throne of God. The dragon can't destroy him. And now the dragon, in the rest of his thwarted, frustrated existence throughout the rest of human history until Christ comes back at the end of time, uh, at the end of this old world uh, to destroy Satan. Now the dragon is trying still to destroy the church, but he cannot. But he cannot. And in the later part of this chapter, uh, John says that the dragon is trying to destroy the rest of the woman's offspring. Well, that's a direct echo 
of Genesis 3.15, when after Adam and Eve have fallen into sin through the temptation, God says to Satan through the serpent, I'm going to put hostility, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will crush your head as you crush his heel. First preview of the cross. Students of scripture and theology often call that the first gospel. They even have a cool Latin word for it. Proto-evangelium. First gospel. First announcement of good news. Right in the aftermath of our having fallen for Satan's lie. And God says, that's not the end of the story. I'm taking Eve back onto my side. And I'm going to bring through a woman an offspring who will defeat Satan. See, all of that's in the background here of Revelation, the very heart of the book. So that's why the blue boxes go back earlier, uh, earlier even in a certain sense than John's readers knew, because this is about really uh, God bringing his Messiah in keeping with his promises to destroy the evil one, to destroy Satan. Um, so just keep that in mind. Uh, we'll come back to that last blue box tomorrow morning in Sunday school. Uh, but what I want to show you is in these chapters, beginning in chapter 12, when we get really down to the heart of things, um, my, I told you last night that I've gotten so many compliments on the title Triumph of the Lamb, and I don't get credit for it because the publisher... Did I tell you that? Yeah, the publisher inflicted... I mean, uh, suggested that this would be a better... My vision was to call it Windows on the War of the Ages, which I thought was pretty cool. Can we have a vote? Which No, no. Um, it captures something, too. Uh, but I actually like the publisher's choice better. But here we are giving Windows on the War of the Ages. Uh, and if you see in the outline, we're looking back at the layers of the core of the conflict. And in this section, in the drama of this section, it really... This whole section, <coughs> excuse me, this whole section really flows from chapter 12 really to the end of the book. And it's structured in such a fascinating way. We first see a heavenly woman in chapter 12, and she's about to give birth to the Messiah. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we see a heavenly woman who is the bride of the Lamb. And we're shown that this, this heavenly woman who is the means by which God's rescuer comes into the world in keeping with God's promise to Eve and in keeping with God's promise to Israel who in the latter chapters of Isaiah is portrayed as a, a woman about to give birth to a male child and in keeping with God's promise ultimately fulfilled through the Virgin Mary when literally Jesus is born of a virgin in the fullness of time. Uh, so God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, but in a certain sense in continuity, the new Israel, the church is continuing that, are his mother, the mother of the Messiah, but we're also the bride for whom the Messiah comes. So at the beginning we see heavenly woman, mother of Messiah. At the end we see heavenly woman, the bride of the Messiah. And then we begin to see the enemies arrayed against Christ and his people. The dragon is introduced. You heard it here. A great, another great sign, the dragon, who is Satan, the serpent, uh, the devil, 
the accuser, uh, in chapter 12, verse 3. Um, and again, then the dragon is vanquished at the end of chapter, or uh, in chapter 20, just before the, uh, the beginning of 20, uh, he's, he's first dis- defeated but not destroyed. We're going to see that. Defeated but not destroyed in the, in the interim between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return. Then eventually destroyed altogether. Uh, and then we begin to see the tools that the dragon uses to try to wage war against the church. So in chapter 13, we see a beast arising out of the sea. We've seen a little bit about that already. It is a kind of a composite of the four beasts representing four world kingdoms from the beginning of Daniel 7. It represents world powers devoted to their own divinity, devoted to making people worship them, especially world powers that use force to coerce submission. So the beast from the sea. And then John also sees a beast that arises from the land, who makes people and urges people to worship the beast from the sea. And then, in contrast to them, John sees a vision of the Lamb, the champion of God's people with his army. And then, after the bowls are poured out, I sort of skipped chapter 16 right now, but the bowls, which are visions of the complete destruction if it was partial destruction when God was restraining his wrath, when the trumpets are sounded, through this period of God waiting to gather his elect, to allow his martyrs to die, to give even the unbelievers opportunity, abundant opportunity to repent, which only compounds their sin. But at the end of time, then uh, the, the lamb will come. And so we see the lamb in chapter 14. The bulls are the outpouring of all the wrath of God. We see that in 16. And the end of those brings into view Babylon, the harlot, um, which is another perspective on the way Satan tries to lure God's people away from trusting Christ. And Babylon is portrayed in terms that emphasize pleasure and material abundance. Like I said last night, Many places in the world, Satan is trying to use the weapon of the beast from the sea, violent aggression, military aggression, or the weapon of the beast from the land, false teaching to lure us to trust in something other than Christ, whether it's a false religion or to trust in the state, to trust in the government to provide all that we need. A lot of people are tempted to that. But I think often in North America, the dragon goes after us through the harlot, through the prostitute, through the appeal of personal affluence, comfort, luxury, pleasure. So those are, those are the cast of characters, as it were, introduced in that order. And then in the rest, you see the cast of characters, you see the outcome in reverse order. So we see the harlot destroyed in chapter 18. We see the lamb triumphing in chapter 19. We see the beasts vanquished and destroyed by the lamb, and then the dragon vanquished and eventually destroyed by the lamb. And then we come back to the heavenly woman, now the bride of the lamb. 
So that helps, I think, a little bit to see why, how those all fit together from chapters 12 into chapter 21, 22. Okay, that's the big picture. Now, let's, let's delve a little bit more deeply into uh, the visions of chapter 12, uh, which is... Uh, um, Right. I'm, I was double-checking my time here. I'm, we're, we're, we're fine. 11.45. Okay, we can do this. Okay. The woman, the child, and the dragon. I, I've said some things about it. Actually, this vision technically opens with what we see as the last verse of verse 11, of chapter 11. 11.19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and a heavy hail. I mentioned earlier this morning that typically when you see a scene in heaven, it's the beginning of something brand new. In, it may be a, a replay of the earlier stories, but that's, that's the vision of heaven. Uh, when John wrote the book of Revelation, he didn't put chapter and verse divisions in it. That actually came in when we started to have printed editions around the time of the Reformation, the chapter and verses. So... You know, we could say, without questioning John at all, we could say, in a certain sense, maybe, maybe chapter 12 should have started with 1119. But that leads into, then, these great signs. And the woman is, as I said, there's an echo here of the promise of Genesis 3.15. So, in a certain sense, she represents Eve. Um, the fact that she also uh, is the mother of a male child connects with a passage over in Isaiah 66 where Israel is shown to be the mother of a male child who will rule and exercise authority. It also fits in the way that John sees this woman as arrayed in, um, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, which is, in fascinating way, an echo of one of the dreams that God gave to Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember the dreams that got Joseph's brother so mad at him? And Joseph saw himself, and he saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to him, his father, his mother, his 11 brothers bowing down to him, kind of the symbol of the fact that he would eventually be exalted in Egypt and they would be dependent on him to feed them. So, again, this, this imagery drawn from an Old Testament revelation given to Joseph, uh, it shows again that, that this woman represents Israel, not just Eve, but also Israel. And then, of course, fulfilled through the Virgin Mary specifically. Um, and she is the mother of the Messiah. This language of her son ruling the nations with a rod of iron comes right out of Psalm 2 where God says to the Messiah, you're my son, today I have become your father, and uh, ask of me, I'll give you the nations. That, that, the New Testament says Psalm 2 is fulfilled in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ, that he is the one who is now ruling the nations. They may or may not know it, but he is on the throne of the universe. All authority given to him in heaven and on earth. And he's bringing people from all the peoples of the world to faith, through the preaching of the gospel. So the woman is Mother Eve, Mother Israel, Mother Mary. It's the people of God. The Son is clearly the Messiah, caught up to God's throne. 
and the enemy is the dragon. In fact, in the, le- in the second vision of this chapter about the war in heaven, verses 7 and following, the dragon is also called um, the ancient, this is verse 9, the dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. No question about what the dragon symbolizes. It's Satan who's spoken a serpent and is out to destroy us and is, as we read in verse 10, has been the accuser of our brothers. So, 1 through 6 is a little snapshot of the turning point in the War of the Ages. The coming of Jesus the Messiah in keeping with the ancient promises of God to his people and his not being destroyed by Satan, not even on the cross. Though he died for his people, sin had no right to him, death had no right to him, his being caught up to the throne room of God. And so Satan cannot get at Christ any longer. And so in the aftermath, we read very briefly in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. That, in a nutshell, is where we're living right now. The people of God in a wilderness prepared for us, protected, but not home. In the wilderness, for God's people, it's always been the place where God can provide for you in a threatening circumstance, but you're not home yet. And this is the church. Now, the second replay in the rest of this chapter shows us that same drama from a different perspective. So now we see it from the standpoint of war in heaven. Michael the, army, the, the head of the armies of God. question is, is this the angel sent by God to bring revelation to Daniel at certain points? Or is this actually a way of looking at Christ himself? I think it could well be the latter. I think in Triumph of the Lamb I said it was probably an angel, but I think it could be the latter. Michael, the name Michael in Hebrew, Michael, It means, who is like God? And the implication is, nobody can be like God. Who is like God? Nobody can be like God. So in a certain sense, we might well see, even even if the vision is presenting a created angel as the head of God's army, still he's really working out the victory that Jesus has won on the cross. And you see, the victory is that Satan is cast out of heaven. Some students of scripture have thought about the original fall of Satan before the fall of humanity. The point, the fact that this is interpreted for us makes it clear that what's really being spoken of here is the defeat of Satan in the cross of Christ. Because you see, the interpretation of Satan being cast out of heaven and defeated is in verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. The defeat of Satan 
is his being expelled from his standing. He didn't have a legitimate standing, but from his standing as a prosecuting attorney against us. I have a son, a PCA up in Chattanooga, who for a while was an assistant district attorney. And an assistant DA has to be a member of the bar. And if you get in trouble with the law and you get disbarred, you can't press cases. As my son would say, I want to put the bad guys away. Well, Satan wants to put the bad guys away. That's us. By nature, that's us. Maybe some of you remember having read for yourself or read to your kids or read to your grandkids C.S. Lewis's first Narnia Chronicle, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Lewis has it to a T there. The white witch first lures Edmund into eating Turkish delight and betraying his brothers and sis- his brother and sisters and the cause of Aslan. And then she has the nerve to turn around and accuse him and say to Aslan, you need to turn him over. He belongs to me. He deserves to die because he disobeyed you. And of course, I can't tell you the end of the story. You know the end of the story. Aslan goes to death for Edmund. Jesus goes to death for us. Lewis gets it. Satan lures us into disobedience and then turns around and accuses us. We often think in the Old Testament about the first chapter of the book of Job where we're shown this heavenly scene of Satan saying, well, of course Job loves and serves you. You've paid him off. You've blessed his life. He has this big family, he's got prosperity, he's got good health, he's just in it for the perks. And God says to Satan, no, Job loves me for me. And I will give you permission within restraint, I will give you permission to take away all the blessings, the material blessings, the temporal blessings. And God does. And Job still doesn't curse God. He has a lot of questions. He'd love to get God face to face and answer some questions, but still, he doesn't curse God. So Satan's accusation against Job in one sense was false, although at the end, Job knows that he has no right to question God's purposes. Probably the background here, the accuser of our brothers is thrown down, is more from a lesser known passage of the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 3, and I've alluded to this yesterday, where the prophet Zechariah speaking to the Jewish people after the exile, is given this vision of their high priest, Joshua, um, who is unfit to represent them before the presence of God. He's defiled. His, His robes are sullied and stained, and he's defiled. And the accuser is standing right beside him, accusing him of his unworthiness. And really, in effect, accusing all of God's people of being too guilty. And God rebukes the accuser. And God then say, and, and has Joshua, the, old, the, the filthy clothing taken off, and new, beautiful, white, perfect raiment, beautiful raiment put on him. And then God says to Joshua, you and your priestly colleagues are previews of a day when I'm going to remove the iniquity of Israel in a single day. And that day we call Good Friday, when Jesus died. And the accuser has no right to accuse us any longer. That's what the heavenly voice is saying. The accuser's been thrown down. He has been disbarred. He can't practice law against us any longer because Christ has borne our penalty. Uh, he, we've conquered 
by the blood of the Lamb. Yes, the word of our testimony is included in that statement because that's our confession that we're trusting in the blood of the Lamb. And we'll confess that even to our dying day, even as martyrs face death. So that's the second view of the battle. Now it's a little bit expanded. It's not just the woman gave birth and her son was caught up and the dragon couldn't get his hands on him. Now it's the view that the devil has been disbarred because the lamb has shed his blood. And again, now Satan can't get his hands. In a sense, he can't get his hands on us if we belong to Christ. But he still tries. So just as we saw in 12.6, the woman fleeing into the desert to be protected and provided for. So now we see in verses 13 and following, again, the dragon pursuing the woman, trying to destroy the woman. She runs into the, she's given wings to fly into the, the desert. This is imagery from actually the book of Exodus about how God brought Israel out into the desert, into the wilderness from, from Egypt. And she's provided for. Now, She's provided for, look at this in verse 14, she's to be nourished or provided for, for a time and times and half a time. What in the world is that about? Well, it's an echo from a prophecy in Daniel that describes a period that we might call three and a half years. In the, John was writing in Greek. But he's drawing from Greek passages that are built on Hebrew and Aramaic, the languages of the Old Testament. And in the Hebrew and Aramaic, those Semitic languages, there is a singular form and there are two plural forms. There's a plural form of a noun that means two, and then there's a plural form that means more than two. The only place I know where we have this corresponding in American English is here in the South. One of our graduates, who comes from Savannah, has taught me that there's you, that's a singular, that there's y'all, that's two, and then there's all y'all, and that's more than two. Is he, is he right? Is that fit for this part of Georgia? Okay, well, this times is not all y'all, it's y'all. So it's one plus two plus a half, three and a half times. And Daniel, it fits. I can only use that here. You know, people, elsewhere in the country, nobody would understand. But, but my friend Matt tells me that's the truth. So, um, so it's it's half of seven. Now, seven's a big number in the Book of Revelation, uh, and 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 numbers count in the Book of Revelation. They are symbolic. And in these chapters, actually in first in 11 and now in 12 and in 13, we hear of a period of the time described in three different ways. Here, the center point here, a time, times, that is two times, and half a time, from the Daniel prophecy, representing about three and a half years, but it's all symbolic, is the center point. Moving out from there, there are references to 1,260 days. You heard that once uh, here in chapter 12 and verse 6. And there's also that reference in chapter 11, 3, 1,260 days. Counting roughly 30 days to the month, 1,260 days is 
three and a half years. Same span of time. But the way you describe it, it looks, it feels longer because it's over a thousand. It feels longer. And then there's a reference to 42 months. It happens once in chapter 11. It talks about the, the church being trampled, the holy city being trampled for 42 months, subject to persecution. And again in chapter 13, we read about the beast who wages war against the saints for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. It's 1,260 days. So for people who could do a little bit of calculation, whether they're listening, they're saying, these are all the same periods of time. But why sometimes 1,260 and sometimes 42 and then at this midpoint, three and a half? I'll tell you my thought. I'm not sure. Maybe when we get to heaven, we can ask and see where, whether it's a guess. It's not just mine. I've, I've learned it from others. Everything I've learned that's of any value, I've learned from somebody else. Describing the same period of time with a large number like 1,260 or with a small number like 42 puts an interesting perspective on this period that we're now living in that John's going to see represented by a thousand years in chapter 20. When, when 1,260 is used, it's in passages that, emphasizes, that emphasize God's protection of his people. 11.3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And the next paragraph points out how people want to kill off the church's witness, these two witnesses who are prophets, priests, and kings, represent the church, and they can't do it. So 1,260 emphasizes protection, and that's the point, of course, in verse 6 of chapter 12. The woman is protected in this place prepared by God for 1,260 days. The church is safe. But when you go to 42... 42 months, the focus is on persecution. The church is safe, but suffering at the same time. Safe in the protective care of God spiritually, but suffering in the physical world. The holy city, chapter 11, verse 2, the holy city is trampled underfoot for 42 months. And again, over in chapter 13, verse 5, The beast was given a mouth-uttering, haughty and blasphemous words, allowed to exercise authority for 42 months and to wage war on the saints, this is verse 7, and to conquer them. Not to conquer them spiritually, because the saints will be faithful by the persevering, preserving power of God, but to destroy believers through martyrdom. So the 1,260 days means God's going to keep his people safe. The 42 means he's not keeping his people safe from all kinds of suffering. In fact, he's going to keep them safe through suffering. And the fact that they equal out to the same thing means I'm talking about the same period of time. The church is safe and suffering throughout this period of time. Satan tries to destroy the church, we see at the end of chapter 12, by issuing water out of its mouth to try to drown the woman. Well, Things that come out of the mouth in the book of Revelation represent the power of words. Chapter 19, we'll see Christ 
with a sword. Actually, in chapter 1 and 19, we see him with a sword proceeding out of his mouth. That's not what our risen Lord Jesus will actually look like when he reappears in his resurrection body. It's a visionary form to say his word has great power. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4 says. Isaiah 49, the servant of the Lord says, The Lord has made my mouth like a sharp sword. It's the power to cut through and, yes, to bring life as well as to kill our pride. So, good words come out of the mouth of Christ. But also, later on, in the visions of the bowls in chapter 16, demonic spirits are going to come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beasts to try to deceive the nations at the very end of history. Well, that's lying words. And the flood here in chapter 12 are attempts to drown the church by persecution, no, by deception, by false teaching, but the church will not be able to be destroyed. Uh, again, in the vision, in, in the drama, uh, it's, it's, it's vividly presented in verse 16. The earth came to the help of the woman and opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And then the dragon became even more furious and simply went out to wage war through the persecution raised by the beast, the beast that emerges from the sea. The dragon stands on the sea, symbolizing its power to influence nations. The beast comes out of the sea. As I said, it's a composite of the four beasts, the four monsters that John, that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. I think it symbolizes because of the way that it uses force and coercion and threat and violence. It basically represents the way world governments use their military muscle to try to suppress the church. And um, that, that happens in the world. It's happening in East Asia at various points. There seems to be an escalation of, sub, of, of government pressure against the unregistered house churches in many parts of China right now. It's happening in Turkey. It's happening elsewhere in the world as well. And then the beast... Notice that, by the way, the beast from the sea is like a mirror image of the dragon. The dragon has ten crowns and seven heads, and the beast has seven heads and ten crowns. So it's it's an image of Satan, but it's it's human governmental military force. And it has divine pretensions. I said Mikael means who is like God. If you look at 13.4, the people who worship the beast say... Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The beast has no parallel. He's the most powerful person in the world. Or this government is the thing that will provide everything for us. But that's really just, it's a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. It has divine protections. It wages war on the saints. Um, and here we begin to see in this chapter the difference between what John calls the people who live on the earth, which are the people who follow the beast, and Christ's own people. Not that Christ's people are not at this point living on the earth. We are. But we really belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we're called the people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 13, verse 8. Those who worship the beast are those whose names are not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. Wonderful, beautiful picture 
several times from this point out in the book of Revelation all the way through chapter 20 of the reality of God's sovereign, loving choice of people for whom Jesus would come to die personally to substitute for our sins and whom the Holy Spirit would personally apply by drawing us to faith in Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a picture in the Bible that goes all the way back to the days of Moses when Israel committed that terrible treason right at the foot of Mount Sinai with the golden calf. And God said, I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to blot them out of my book. And Moses said, Lord, don't do that. Your name is on the line with this people. You just brought them out of Egypt. Don't destroy them in the desert. Blot me out of your book. God says, no, I can do that. Moses is not worthy to be the Redeemer. He has his own sin issues. Uh, but that theme of the book of God, and it goes down through uh, into some of the Psalms, where, where Zion is described as having this, this census role that's not just people from the 12 tribes of Israel, but people from other pagan nations. But now we can say that we're enrolled in the peoples of God. doesn't actually mention Swedes, but in principle, even Swedes are included. Far, far away. Uh, but other pagan people. Now, because God, already in the Old Testament, he's saying, I'm gathering in people from all the peoples of the earth. Daniel sees the people whose names are inscribed in the book as well. So, uh, there's the distinction. Now, we come to something that, again, there's no controversy on at the end of chapter 13, where we read about the false prophet who's trying to make people worship the beast and receive its mark. The mark of the beast. Hmm, yeah. And the number of the beast's name, which is 666. Yeah. I have been told that this may refer to having barcodes tattooed on our, our, on our foreheads and on our hands or computer chips embedded. But remember, we've already heard that God and the Lamb inscribed their names on the foreheads of their people. And the background of that actually is all the way back in Deuteronomy 6, where God said to his people, you're to love me with everything in you, all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And then he said, now put your law on your heart, put your law on your children's heart, write your law, write my law on, on the door frames, and put my law on your forehead and on your hands. The rabbis thought that meant you write a little piece of the law, you put it in a little capsule that you tie a little, uh, a little wooden box called a phylactery and you tie it with leather around. In the very observant communities, there are that. You may see that at some point. Very observant Jewish communities. The point was not... The Lord didn't mean to, that to be taken literally. I mean, he just wanted the word of God everywhere in Israel's life and basically to say on your head and on your hand, everything you think, everything you do needs to be controlled by my word. I would suggest to you that the seal of the Lamb, the name of the Lamb and of his Father, means that he controls everything we think and everything we do. And the same thing. On the other side, the mark of the beast is people controlled in their minds, in their thoughts, by all things satanic. And 
the more, you know, it says here that people couldn't buy food or do commerce and so on. Uh, the more a culture becomes hostile to Christ, uh, it may or may not, it probably won't impose tattoos or computer chips, but it will demand a kind of a compliance with the cultural standard that opposes God. It will involve, for example, that Christian churches, perhaps, Christian educational institutions, cannot make a distinction between people who practice biblical, sexual, heterosexual fidelity in marriage and those who have another option. Can't make any distinction. Can't be discriminating. That's the kind of thing that is the mark of the beast. It's called 666. A lot of debate over that. What does that mean? Well, it's not quite 777. That would be completion and perfection. That belongs to God. It's only 666. That's possible. But there's also... Did I give, in your, did I give you that fancy name in your outline? Gematria? Or did I take it out? I did take it out. We're on the back of page two, number of the name. But there is this word that's used in Greek in the ancient world called the ancient world in, in their alphabets used letters also for numbers. So that A would be one and B would be two and C would be three and so on. Well, that was true for the ancient world as well. And if you add up the numerical value of the, the letters for the word beast in Greek, the total is 666. Trust me, I did the math. I've got a calculator. But also, if you add up the numerical value, and that's why I also put here, uh, that's Therion there, the beast. If you add up the numerical value of the first Roman emperor who initiated persecution of the church, who was Nero Caesar, sometimes referred to as Neron Caesar, the numerical value of those letters also add up to 666. Probably one of those is what John's... It's, it's a code. This is one place where Revelation is not com- completely intended to be revealing in every respect. It's like an encrypted email uh, in a certain sense. And John's saying, you know how to calculate this, right? And it may be Nero... It may be simply the beast as representative of human forces. But the point is, the beast wants to exercise authority over people's thoughts, minds, attitudes, and therefore actions. And people who comply with that, it will go well for them in this pagan culture that John is living in. In many ways, maybe increasingly, we're living in something that's moving back to that in very sad ways. And, and yet, God calls his own people to be controlled by the fact that they bear the name of Jesus now. He marks out our identity. Okay. Um, I mentioned that the beast from the land, the false prophet, represents religious deception. He looks like the lamb, but he speaks like the, the dragon. So he appears, even apparently can do some miracles uh, by demonic power. Uh, And yet, he's only luring people away from God. Who is this beast? 
In John's day, in John's place, John's first hearers would have thought of the fact that more and more of the cities, those seven cities, were dedicating temples or shrines to the spirits of past Roman emperors. There are dedications to the shrines of Augustus, who was the emperor, the nephew of Julius Caesar, who became the emperor, who kind of united the kingdom. And several of these cities had those. Worship Augustus. Or shrines to the goddess Roma, who is supposed to be the patron goddess of the Roman Empire. So it's kind of civil religion. We sometimes talk about that in America. That's what it was like in those days. Interestingly, that took root in the eastern part of the empire long before it took root in Italy, where the capital of the empire was. Because the Italians actually knew the character of their emperors. And they knew they were not anywhere near being gods. Uh, But in the east, where they had a tradition of worshipping divine rulers, Egypt was like that, other places, they would have these dedications. So in John's day, it was primarily worshipping at a temple that was dedicated to, in a sense, to the state, to looking to the state to provide all for us. Health care, disaster relief, protection, everything, looking to the state for everything. In our day, it may have other manifestations. Well, we're getting close to the end of the time. I'm, I want to take just a few minutes to talk about the Lamb and his virgin army, and you see from the outline I'm not even going to attempt to go all the way through to 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19. But tomorrow we're going to come back to chapter 20, I promise. Okay? But in contrast then to these enemies, the dragon who tried to destroy the Messiah but couldn't, who in fact because of Messiah's death and resurrection has been expelled so he can no longer accuse God's people because of the blood of the Lamb. We testify to our faith in the blood of the Lamb. And then the dragon trying to use military power and political power, the beast from the sea, and religious deception of a variety of kinds, including civil religion, to lure God's people. In the light of all that, John has given now a vision of beginning of 14 of our champion. I looked, 14.1, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, and they are blameless. 144,000, a symbol, goes back to chapter Uh, Seven, as we saw, the the true Israel of God, which is not just 144,000, but a countless multitude. But here the point is, their number is complete. The Lamb is their leader. They're pure because of the work of the Lamb, and they're celebrating. We hear them celebrating again at the beginning of chapter 15, when John sees them singing beside uh, the sea of glass, 
15, verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, there's some intervening visions in there, but it's basically this theme. Christ has won the victory. Christ is leading his people. The glimpse that John gives here is a heavenly Mount Zion. Not just an earthly Mount Zion, but the heavenly Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem, and the the army of the Lamb. Uh, The point about their being pure and being virgins That was the requirement of Israel when they went to holy war in the Old Testament. That comes up in an incident in the life of David. Uh, It doesn't mean that there are no married men in heaven or or in the church and and not that there are no women in heaven, but the the point is that we're symbolized as a holy army right there uh, because of the work of the Lamb. And the Lamb will see his victory in chapter 19 at the end of history. But even here, this is a kind of an interlude to say, though the enemies look big and terrifying, the Lamb has the victory, and we belong to Him. How's the song go? Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. So there's the center of the book. There's the the core message of the book, right at the very center of everything. Um, again, can't touch on everything that comes t- in the next few chapters, uh, but I hope this has given you a picture of it all. And, and we do want to delve more, as many as you as can be here in the morning, uh, into to Revelation 20 and, and see how that works its way out in the vision of the thousand years. We're almost to quarter two, which was the promised end, but I didn't give you any time for questions. I don't know. We'll, I'm a man under authority here. We'll let... Uh, yes? A question or two or three? Or Great. Ah, one taken and one left behind. Good question. Yes. That comes from Jesus' discussion of things to come in Matthew 24. And it would be great to talk about a whole bunch of stuff in Matthew 24. But I think the key to understanding Matthew 24 is that at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus says... I know you're impressed to his disciples. I know you're impressed with this temple and these great stones. But I'm telling you, the day is coming when this temple will be flattened and the stones will not be left on one another. And the disciples say, Lord, when will these things be and what are the signs of your coming? They think that's all one thing. And what Jesus does in Matthew 24, and I'd have to take you through it, I just don't have time, but we can talk about it afterwards maybe, is he, he separates those two things. The destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem from the sign of his coming. And in fact, at a certain point, he says, I'm going to tell you about things you can see to anticipate leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, that actually happened in 70 A.D., 
And that's, it's in that context where he says, one will be taken, another left behind in the warfare that would lead to the fall of Jerusalem when the Roman armies came in. Then later on he says, now about that day and hour, the day of my second coming, no one knows the day or the hour. You need to be ready at all times. Be prepared that there will be wars and rumors of wars, but the, the end is not coming yet. You just need to be ready at all times because you can't predict that second coming. So that has to do more with people taken in captivity, actually, into captivity by the Romans and others left behind than the way I was taught that some people are snatched out of the earth and then the unbelievers are left below behind. It's actually kind of the opposite of what I was taught as a kid. You can ponder that one, or we can talk about Matthew 24. Good.